0: Hey listeners, thanks for dropping in. I'm Christy. And I'm Melissa. And this is Buried Motives, where we dig deep into the details of some of the most gruesome Dirtbag murderers. Hey listeners, today we're going to discuss the murder of Joanne and Alex Kachanek. And I'll throw out a warning that Alex, at the time of his death, is less than four months old. So we—oh no! Yeah, we'll be discussing the death of a baby. That's so sad. This case is not as cut and dry as most of the cases that we'll probably discuss. On the surface, this case is a classic fatal attraction case, where your scorned ex-lover takes out their jealousy and hurt on a new love interest. Are we talking boiling a rabbit in a pot type of fatal attraction here? Oh, just wait. Oh, it's going to get good. While this case is full of drama from the contention between the victim's families and the police to the mad search for alibis and all sorts of he said, she said, the case is largely circumstantial and the murderer still maintains her innocence. So even though the jury had no doubts at the time of her verdict, she still says she's innocent. What's really interesting is there's no confession to this case because she maintains her innocence. So we'll actually be going through the evidence that the police present. And we get to follow, like, what the jury heard. So you get to decide whether Patricia is a dirtbag murderer or was she wrongly convicted. Okay, I'm curious what you're going to tell us about and what our listeners are going to think about it. Go to our Facebook or Instagram and let us know what you think. So in the spring of 1992, Joanne Marie O'Connor meets Andy Katranak. She's 24 at the time and Andy's 38. Joanne was born on October eleventh, 1968. She's the youngest of four children of Sarah and David O'Connor. She's Irish-Italian and has dark olive skin. Her mother describes her as being perfectly groomed, fun, likable, beautiful, always happy. Before meeting Andy, she had been married for less than a year, but that marriage had ended because of an alleged abuse, or some people say that she was just bored. Oh, that's quite the spectrum of (laughs) why that marriage ended. Andy Katranak was born September 20th, 1954 to Veronica and Andrew Sr. Katronak. He was formerly a semi-pro boxer in Las Vegas. He was six foot two, and at the time that they met, he worked and owned his own construction company. Oh, wow. He was quite a catch compared to her first husband. Yeah, and she sounds gorgeous. Yeah, we must have made a pretty dapper-looking couple. So shortly after the two met, Joanne moved in to 740 Front Street, Catasauqua, Pennsylvania with Andy. They married May 29th, 1993, and on August 21st, 1994, Alex Martin Katronak is born, a large, healthy baby with almond-shaped blue eyes, whose grandma would later proudly report to whoever would listen was a very advanced baby for his age. Aww. Just like any grandma, right? Yeah. Yeah. December 12th, 1994, Joanne answers a call from Patricia. known as Patty. She and Andrew had previously dated on and off from 1986 to 1991, and she'd even stayed for a short time in the Katranak residence following a breakup, leaning on Andy for emotional support. Okay, so she's Andy's ex-girlfriend. She's Andy's ex-girlfriend from before joanne's time that's right okay andy and patty had maintained a friendship after their mutual breakup and the pair still spoke on the phone occasionally during the call patty asked to speak to andy and joanne refuses telling her to leave andy alone that he's happily married and has a baby now andy's at home at the time of the call and doesn't interfere with this joanne would later discuss this call with her friends the next day so that's pretty bold of Patty. Well, if it's just a friend calling, then she just wants to talk to her friend. Okay. But Joanne obviously has yeah. objections to this. Would you flip out over one phone call? I wouldn't flip out over one phone call, but I do feel like women should trust their intuition. Right? Sometimes something feels a little off. Off? Yeah. My whole hold up with this case is that... It's largely based on this phone call that happens on the 12th. So December 15, 94, Joanne talks on the phone with her mother-in-law, Veronica, around 1.30pm and invites her to go Christmas shopping. Joanne fails to pick up her mother-in-law at the appointed time, and her mother-in-law waits around until about 3.30 when her husband gets home from work, and she figures that Joanne just must have forgot to pick her up or changed her mind about the shopping trip. Okay, that can happen. It can. And there are reports that their relationship was a little bit tense. So maybe this is a plausible reason of why her mother-in-law thought, oh, maybe she just flaked out. Right. And didn't pick me up. Andy arrives home around 6 p.m. that night and is perplexed but not really worried that Joanne and Alex aren't home yet. He notices chickens have been pulled out for dinner and settles down to watch TV. So he's fully expecting them. They'll show up. They just went out for the day. At 7.30, he calls Joanne's sister Peggy. Peggy hasn't heard from her. At 8 p.m., Andy calls his parents home to see where Joanne is and is told that she never showed up for their shopping trip. So now he starts to get a little bit nervous. Yeah, it's been a few hours now. Yeah. So he calls the local hospitals and the local police to see if there's been any accidents reported. Andy's parents come over to help him look for Joanne. He notices that the back basement door is ajar while he was downstairs checking on an oil tank. With this finding, he gets really worried, and he calls the police at 10.42 p.m officers come to the house and take a look around staying about 18 minutes they determine that there's no signs of criminal activity so they leave okay so is it the door to outside or the door down to the basement that's ajar? it's the door to outside to outside okay yeah. so in their basement they had a door that went oh, like, outside. A walkout basement. Yeah, like a walkout basement okay gotcha Joanne's parents and sister arrive to help look for Joanne, and shortly before 3 a.m., Joanne's tan Toyota is found in the parking lot of McCarty's Bar, which was next to their house. So right next door, there's her car. Really? Yeah. And he didn't notice when he came home that their car was right there. It's at the back, so you can see like aerial photos, so it's at the back of their house where they where okay. he wouldn't have entered from, but okay. still, it's like, if you're really searching for your wife, you'd think you'd find it next door. Maybe. Right? You walk around the block. But if there's an alley there, you might not see it. Right. If you walk around the block. So I can see how you could miss that. The police are called at 2.45 a.m. to be told that the car has been found. The police come and do a preliminary search. They find that the engine is cold and the car has frost on it. Its keys are locked inside. And now there's some discrepancy between the position of the driver's seat, whether it was left in the fully forward or the fully pushed back position. But it's noted that it's not in Joanne's customary position. So where she kept it or where she would have driven it in, it's not in that normal position. Okay. Because we all have our own position. That's right. How close we want it to the steering wheel. There's no dirt or mud on the tires, but there is a can of mace on the floor. It's usually stored in the glove box, but most disturbing to the family is that the car has been backed into the parking spot. And so Joanne is notoriously bad at backing up. And she would avoid it at all costs. So this is like a huge tip off that this is not Joanne who has parked the car to her family. Oh, are you sure her name's not Christy? Because that sounds like me. (laughs) Christy is really good at backing up. (laughs) There was one time I was leaving Melissa's house and she had planted new trees and had these little wooden stakes marking where they were. And how many did I run over as I was trying to back out of your place? like there's my crazy friend <laughs> backing out of my big long driveway hitting the little sticks you eventually made it it's all good i did and but... i didn't run over any trees yeah did i well maybe one <laughs> did i it's okay <laughs> i you owe made you it. a tree oh no <laughs> But this is what really made the family feel uncomfortable that something was wrong because they knew for sure that she just would not back up. It wasn't in character of her. So police don't collect anything at this time. And they actually tell Andy that he can take the car home. Oh, that's odd. Because with that mace on the floor, that to me says that she went to go grab it. Something was going to happen. She saw something coming and went to grab the mace. Yeah. Why would the mace be out otherwise? And if you've got this woman that's missing... And then her car's in the wrong spot. Why would she park at the bar behind her house when her driveway is right next door? Yeah. And with her baby. It doesn't make a lot of sense, but the police actually don't collect it. They tell Andy to take the car home. Oh no. But he actually refuses because he thinks that, no, this is going to disturb potential evidence. Shortly after finding the car, Andy places a call to Patty's mother to see if she's at home. And this is really interesting. Why do you call your ex-girlfriend? At 3 a.m. in the morning. Well, her mother, your ex-girlfriend's mother? He says that he actually didn't have the phone number for Patty because it was always her calling him. So he tracks down her mother's number from an old notepad that his dad had. So they track down Patty's mother's phone number and they call her mother. And he explains that he's just trying to get a hold of Patty to see where she is. You know, his wife's missing and he's concerned. And... Patty's mom says, oh, don't worry. I'll, I'll give her a call and I'll get right back to you. So Patty's mother calls Andy back and tells him that Patty is at home in bed. This is strange. It's because so if your wife and your little baby are missing three o'clock in the morning, your first instinct is to call your ex-girlfriend. So that tells me that Joanne probably had reason to be upset that Patty was calling. Or this is Andy's setup right from the very beginning. Set up from Patty set up of patty okay because remember she says i was at home in bed my mom talked to me but this is andy pointing fingers already at me yeah but then you would think he would go and tell the police to me it makes him look more suspicious to call patty in the middle of the night yeah it's just an odd thing to do right it is he's got some explaining to do the call between patty and her mother is actually a local call and if you remember back in the 90s we had that big long phone bill but local calls don't show up it's only long distance calls that show up So there's actually no record of the phone call taking place. I thought it was super weird. Yeah, this is suspicious. If somebody's looking for you, like if your mom calls you in the middle of the night and says, hey, Andy's looking for you, do you not give Andy a call back directly? Right, at three o'clock in the morning. And if he's that concerned about his wife, why isn't he calling his wife's friends? Hey, have you seen my wife? That's right. Well, he did call her sister. So one person. Yeah, one person. I would just think you would call your wife's friends before you call your 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 ex-girlfriend. It's just really weird. She shouldn't even be crossing your mind at this point. But he says because of the phone call and the hang up a couple of days before is what led him to think about her. And think about her enough that he's going to phone her mother at 3 a.m. Okay. So maybe he was stewing about it. Yeah. And thought maybe Patty has something to do with it. It's just a weird phone call. It is weird. Later that morning, so still really early in the morning. Okay. um, He probably hasn't slept. He hasn't slept. He's been up all night. And he finds a cut phone line when he tries to make a call on the cordless phone. So in their house, they have a cordless phone that's kept in the bedroom. And then they have their, like, attached to the wall phone in the kitchen with the big long cord that's right that You would big go from cord. room to room <laughs> he calls the police again at 5 a.m to report the cut phone line the phone wire that has been cut is the one to the cordless phone in the bedroom and that's the one that joanne uses the most in the basement it's located at the very opposite end of the basement which is dark and not easily accessible or in plain sight the main line that went to the kitchen that wasn't cut was in clear view of the basement door. So whoever cut that, they knew exactly where it was. That They right. had to know the ins and outs of the house to know where to cut. They had to dig. Okay. Police, again, come to investigate, but they don't spend a lot of time there. Kind of give it a once over and then they leave again. That's so shocking. Like, do they think this is just a marital dispute and she's taken off with the kid? Wait, we'll get there. Okay. I'll be patient, fine. At approximately 10 a.m., a detective from the Catasauqua Police Department comes to the house to oversee a more thorough investigation. So they've received three calls now from this worried husband. They showed up a couple of times, really didn't do much of an investigation. But when one of the senior officers gets on in the morning, he comes over to the house. And now they're actually oh, okay. going to do an investigation. The so morning shift is, let's get this done. That's right. Come on, night guys. See. What have you been doing? You actually do have to work. <laughs> they were busy with other calls that they probably thought were more pressing i'm kidding i know our police do so much for us i wasn't bashing our police at all i love them they come over to the house to oversee a more thorough investigation they find that andy has fixed the phone line before the police got there and the police never saw it cut they're just taking his word for it well the original police they They saw saw the cut cut phone line but there was never actually any written report of it so the police that came at 5 a.m they didn't write it down in their notebook but they said that they saw it cut. They said that they saw it cut. Okay. Yep. And Andy claims that actually the officers told him that he could fix it so that he could make a call. Okay. They find things in order in the house. The suitcases and clothes are not missing. The only missing things are Alex's diaper bag and Joanne's purse. And the police collect a minimal amount of things from the house. Some bathroom trash, mostly. In that trash, they collected some recently used tampons. Okay. Re- I know. Remember like that. You. Okay. <laughs> Oh, I think I know where that's going because she just had a baby, right? Nope. You're not on the right track. I'm not on at the all. right track. No, okay. It it help it helps determine time of death later on. Oh, I thought maybe she wasn't didn't have her period yet if she was breastfeeding no. and so that yeah. it was no. Patty's tampon no. in the garbage. <sighs> that's that would where be my brain so went. Crazy. <laughs> The basement door now has very obvious signs of tampering. The first call reported a disturbed hinge, and now it's noted that there are screws that have been removed from a window beside the basement door and from the actual hinge on the basement door. So, Andy's probably fiddling with it to make it look worse than it is. You betcha. Andy! I know. Quit making yourself look so suspicious! So suspicious, especially in a case where the wife goes missing. The first suspect is always the husband. I know. The guy is very suspicious. suspicious. On December 18th, Pennsylvania State Police are called in to help with the investigation. So this is now like three days later. The first break in the case comes on December 19th when police start to process Joanne's car. Although there's not a lot to work with, the police find there's very little dirt on the undercarriage, no fingerprints or any traces of blood on the actual car. They do find six strands of hair stained with dried blood on the driver's seat headrest. The blood is either Joanne's or her son's and the hairs are suspicious because they are not consistent with Joanne's, Alex's or Andy's hair. They appear to be blonde and approximately eight inches in length. Oh, but they have blood on them. They have blood on them. So is Patty a blonde? Patty isn't a blonde. She's a brunette. She Okay, now I'm thrown. What? Yeah. Just wait. You know who is a blonde though? Andy. Does he have eight inch long hair? No, he doesn't. Oh. That's why it's not. It's <laughs> new one. It <laughs> that doesn't help me then, <laughs> Melissa. <laughs> Police become skeptical of Andy's explanation of how the intruder got into the house and he becomes a suspect. Yeah, he's, po- he's basically taking a giant sign and pointing it at himself. Right. With all the tampering. Me. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Each time the police have returned, it seemed that there was more and more damage down to the basement door. So again, that's, this is why they're s- suspicious of him. Police investigate the house and find that Andy has fixed the phone line, like he's tampering again with evidence. And it's noted that And he doesn't really seem particularly frantic while authorities search desperately to find his wife and his child. And even in TV clips, you can watch him. He's like cool as a cucumber. He didn't come off as anguished at all. Do you think he was in shock or? Well, he says that he just had to maintain his cool because you have to be cool and calm and collected or he wouldn't be able to do anything for his wife and child. So that's why he Mm. was maintaining his composure. Yeah, sounds sketchy. Close family and friends don't think Andy has anything to do with the disappearances. They describe the couple as happily married. And although there are some friends and third party reports that everything wasn't so peachy in the Catranac home, most people do say that, yeah, they were a happy couple and they were getting along with their new baby. Okay. And every couple has their ups and downs. No one has a perfect home life. Absolutely. One of the most interesting discrepancies comes from Andy himself. In two different police reports, he tells police that he left for work while Joanne was still in bed and in one other police reports he's able to tell the police what his wife is wearing that day what yeah so this was a catchy one for me i was like oh how do you do that yeah andy's looking good for this one i know in the days following the disappearances of his wife and child andy agrees to take two polygraph tests he passes each but does show deception on each of the tests so when you take a polygraph test you can show deception sometimes and not absolutely fail the test and that's what happened with him okay so on december 19th At 2 p.m., Andy agrees to take a polygraph test where one of the questions he answers shows deception. And it's, are you attempting to withhold any information concerning your wife and child? So he knows more than he's saying that he does. He claims that he thought about hiding a vibrator from the police when they came to investigate the home. So that's why he showed deception. That's what he was thinking about when they asked that question and he said no. But is that showing? Because, like, what was the, the question was... Something Are you attempting to withhold any information concerning your wife or child? Oh, okay. So it doesn't just say like about their disappearance no. or... No, yeah. And so he says that that's what he was thinking. And polygraph tests aren't the greatest. No, and especially this was, what, the 90s? Yes. So like, I don't even think they're that great now, let alone back in the 90s. He agrees to take another test later in February and shows deception again on a similar question. Did you make up any part of the disappearances of your wife and son? But this could be because he's been t- he tampered with the door. He does admit that he did look for Joanne's wallet in the car and he did play detective. So he sat in the car after the police turned it back over to him, okay. looking for her wallet and trying to figure things out, which I think is kind of reasonable. If the police just walk away, then I'm going to still be searching for answers. Oh, I would be too. Yeah, they yeah. told him, take the vehicle home. That's right. So yeah, you hop in and try to you try to figure, figure it out. out, right? So I think that's plausible. And it's I funny. still can't get over the police just releasing the vehicle when there's hairs and blood. And... Well, they didn't find that until later. Right. Right. So they just saw a clean car. It wasn't until they were actually processing the car and it was actually somebody going over with their tape trying to pull off any hairs from the So it wasn't super noticeable. It wasn't noticeable. So yeah. it was not a it... at first. That's right. Despite all of this interfering with the evidence and storytelling to get the police to pay attention, Andy has a pretty solid alibi. He was working on an addition for a friend's house. He arrived in the morning at the regular time and worked with his dad until 3 p.m. He was reported to still be at home when the family's children returned from school at approximately 3.30 and was still there when the friend returned from work at 5 p.m. And actually the friend worked alongside him until about 6 p.m. when he leaves to go home. Okay. So his alibi is pretty solid. Yeah, that doesn't give him a very big window to do anything. Not at all, no. Police were also finding it hard to come up with a motive for Andy. So Joanne had minimal life insurance, and while he was horrible at money management, it didn't really seem to be any worse than any other point of his life. Okay. Throughout the beginning of the investigation, the Katranak family and the police investigating the case seemed always at odds. Andy actually contacts a private investigator to help find his family because he feels the police aren't doing their jobs. This doesn't impress the police, who believes that he keeps getting in the way of the investigation. So it doesn't seem to me like, if you're guilty, do you hire a private investigator to find somebody? Yeah, because you would not want someone to be looking further into this case. That's right. You'd be super happy about the police kind of brushing it off. Right. And it doesn't seem like he has a lot of motive to do it. Like you said, if I was, well, let's rephrase this. If someone (laughs) was going to plan to murder someone and you, you would probably take out a life insurance or increase your life insurance. Yeah, like that's a common motive for people if they're right. planning to. And really especially do that. Andy was notoriously bad at handling finances. Like he had caused houses to go bankrupt. Actually, the house that he currently lived in with Joanne was owned by his parents partially. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, then maybe he wasn't wise enough to to <laughs> have that forethought of I should increase my insurance. <laughs> Andy tries to help the investigation along by giving police his ideas on who could be involved with the disappearances. He names Joanne's ex-husband who it was thought that he was abusive and that's why her first marriage ended. Right. His alibi is considered solid. He was at work which was actually a few hours away. From okay the so definitely quarantine. not he the wasn't ex. yeah it wasn't him. And he mentions Patricia Rohr, his ex-girlfriend. Just as Andy is pointing the finger at Patty, on December 22nd, Patty's mom calls Andy's house and a police officer answers and tells him about her suspicion that Andy can't father children and that's what makes him look suspicious. So how does Patty's mom know this?
1: Patty? I guess because
0: Patty and Andy had dated. Police arrange for the FBI in North Carolina to question Patricia Rohr at her home. So she lives there. Yeah, she lives in North Carolina. So she doesn't actually even live in the same state anymore as Andy. Okay. It's actually over a 10-hour drive. Oh wow. So the police are thinking that we've found our motive. Yeah, cuz now Patty's mom has injected herself into this by calling them, That's calling right. the house and talking to the police. Super strange, right? Yeah. During that interview, Roar is a brunette, does not appear to have any injuries, and is helpful with the investigators. She answers questions and confirms her mother's suspicions about Andy's ability to father children. She didn't use birth control the whole time they were together, and she never got pregnant. So that's why they're saying that they don't have any medical proof of this. They're just assuming. No. Patty is asked about her alibi and she said she got grain for her horses and went to the gas station. Okay. But at this point, the interview is largely about Andy and his character. So they're really not investigating Patty at all. Police would later ask Andy to provide a semen sample to confirm that he could father children as a way of proving or disproving this possible motive. Okay. Turns out he can father children. Yeah. So there's no question then that Alex belongs to Andy and Joanne. Well, together. they didn't do a DNA test. They right. just but the, they know it's possible it's possible that, that he, could. he he could father children. Yeah. So it's not that he actually can't and then he knows that Joanne had cheated. On December twenty second, reports are made to the media asking people with information to come forward. I often wonder how many times that actually works for an investigation. I think it's like finding the needle in the haystack. There might, is it worth it to go through all of those? Because there might be that one that does lead them somewhere. Yeah. And there were actually several people that came forward. Someone says that they have seen Joanne and baby Alex at a convenience store on the 20th, buying large amounts of supplies. Another older man sees Joanne arguing with Andy, who is disguised in a wig and a beard, arguing about a baby. Oh, that one's weird. That one's weird. Joanne um, was seen walking along a railroad track at 4 p.m. on December 15th. Somebody else saw Joanne at an airport, a neighbor that heard four gunshots in the area during the early morning of December 15th, and two workers from a casket company that is actually beside the McCarthy bar um, where the car was found. They say that they noticed the car there when they ended their shift. It wasn't there when they began their shift, but when they ended their shift and went home around 3, 3.30, the car was there parked in the parking lot. So they do find a little bit of information. Police investigate possible leads, and for the most part, they rule out the validity of most of the claims, and not much is actually learned. Okay, no surprise there. I can't imagine that's ever a super useful tactic. They're grasping at straws at this yeah, point. Yeah, I don't know. I'd be curious to find out Yeah, if that is. I think the people working out theirs was probably legit. And how do you, as a police officer, weed through all of that different information? Like, that's a lot of legwork to do. That is... There is some belief that maybe Joanne just ran off, but family and friends say that that's unlikely because she was extremely happy. And police kind of dropped that avenue of the investigation as well when there's no activity on her bank account or credit cards. Yeah, and if you're on the run with a four-month-old, you're taking some stuff with you. More than just a diaper bag. More than just a diaper bag. After four months of searching, it starts to feel like the mother and child have disappeared into thin air. But on April 9, 1995, a farmer in Heidelberg Township, 15 miles from where Joanne's home is, comes across what he thinks is garbage in a wooded area. He finds a woman's body with an infant laying face down on the woman's stomach. Oh no. It's later confirmed to be Joanne and baby Alex. Oh, this is heartbreaking. Police find Joanne under a thin layer of leaves, face up with knees bent. Joanne has been shot in the face and beaten around her head. 15-week-old Alex is skin-to-skin on her stomach. Arms are stretched across her with his legs dangling off his mother's abdomen. His head has left an indent in his mother's stomach, and his face is buried so tightly into her skin that his facial features have been preserved. Oh my goodness. And this is like four months later. They've been you yeah, know for a, four months a while later. There is evidence of animal activity on both the bodies and obvious exposure to the elements. Right The area that the bodies are found in is 200 feet from the intersection in a densely wooded area about 250 feet wide. The area is remote and is only accessible by a logging trail or a railroad bed. So you kind of have to know where that area is. After 15 hours of scene investigation, no footprints or fingerprints are found, which actually isn't a big surprise because it's like, Four months later, there are several hairs on a diaper bag similar to the ones in the car and one dark hair is found along with three fragments of fingernails around the body and a cigarette butt found underneath. On mm. April 10th, 1995, an autopsy on the body shows that Joanne was shot in the face with a 22 caliber like weapon and hit in the head 19 times with a blunt force object. The coroner would testify that Joanne, 26, at the time of her death, had seven wounds on the top of her head, two on the left side, five on the right, and five on the back of her head. She had been shot in the right cheek. Oh, what a terrible death. It is awful. Her nose had been fractured. She had bruises on her right shin. Her left middle finger had multiple breaks, and the coroner attributed these to defensive injuries. Oh, absolutely. So whoever this was, was angry. Super angry. Like, this sounds like a personal kill to me. All injuries occurred while the victim was alive because of the presence of active bleeding at all of the sites. But they couldn't really determine if the blows, so the beating had taken place first, or if the gunshot wound had taken place first. A copper-coated bullet and two lead fragments were removed from Joanne Katronak's face. No signs of sexual assault were present, and a tampon is found inside the vaginal canal. The baby's autopsy was inconclusive. The infant is said to have died from suffocation or exposure. Also, the baby might have still been alive when... Yeah, they can really tell. Aww. Alex's diaper bag is found fully packed with clean diapers and no dirty diapers in the collection container that Joanne carried with her. And there's an unopened can of formula. The diaper bag had hair on it that was consistent with what was found in the car. That blonde hair. Yeah. So this probably happened early in her outing. If none of these things have been used. It was generally believed that the two were killed very soon after the abduction because of the tampon inside the vaginal canal that corresponds to the used tampons that they found in the house at the time of her disappearance and the packed diaper bag. So if you kept a baby out for any length of time, even a couple hours, right, you'd have like dirty diapers or maybe a formula used, but it was fully stocked. Like it hadn't even been used. Okay. Yeah. You can tell a freshly packed diaper bag. Definitely. The time of death is actually difficult to establish because of the exposure to the cold temperatures and the length of time between the disappearances and the bodies being found. So there was an entomologist who testified during the trial who could only suggest that bug activity started probably around February. Oh, was that because it was too cold from December to February? He couldn't say if it was too cold for bug activity prior to that or if the bodies weren't in the woods before that. Oh man, that's a scary thought. Police begin to build theories around what has happened to the mother and the child. A profiler suggests that the perpetrator is male because of the violence of the crime and the need for physical strength to overpower Joanne. One of the investigators on the case theorizes that the gun might have jammed after the first shot, necessitating the beating to take place. And this theory is based on a previous case that that particular investigator had worked on. Okay. Okay. Please take Andy out to the crime scene to see his reaction. So they're kind of what? still on the fence to see like what is this like? How is he going to react to all this? He and if he's innocent. Like, oh my gosh, how traumatic to do well, that! It's not when the body like they just take him to the general area. Oh, they don't actually okay. like the take bodies aren't to where the bodies no with, like, the bodies have been removed. Bodies. But they do oh, take okay. him to the general area because they want to see his reaction to like. Does he walk right to the place where the bodies were Does found? Does he look over to that area? That's right. Okay. They're try- they're that looking. makes sense. They're, again, still suspicious of him. I'm still suspicious of him. He doesn't really remember anything about the area in particular until they're just about to leave. When he tells police that his ex-girlfriend, Patty, used to ride her horses in the area and for a period of time actually worked at a farm right close to the area. Oh. So this is the third time that Patty's been brought up by Andy. Yeah. In the investigation. And police start to take the suggestion seriously. It's hard to know what's true. Like, is Andy just trying to point the finger at Patty? It is a lot of he said, she said. Did Patty actually do it? But Patty was in another state at the time, so that doesn't add up. Yeah. And they're thinking it was a man that would thats right. had to have killed her. Patricia Lynn Rohr, or Patty, was born on January 21st, 1964, in eastern Pennsylvania, raised by Pat and Bob Rohr. Her father died when she was 15, and at that time she dropped out of high school to work full time to help pay bills, and she went to night school. Oh, that's rough. Mm-hmm. She it doesn't sound like she had a, the greatest teenage years. At night school is where she met her first husband, a landscaper. He would later describe her as a cold woman always looking for a fight. Police were called to their residence for multiple disputes. She gave birth to a son, Charles, on August 19th, 1982. Sadly, he died of SIDS at three and a half months. So close age. Close age to the baby. So is this a jealousy, rageful thing? Well, that's the story that's going to get built. Joanna's living the life she thinks she should have had with Andy. Shortly after the death of her son, Patty gets a divorce and moves in with her aunt and uncle in New Jersey in 1993. She tries to rebuild a life there. It was at this time that she met Andy at a restaurant where she worked. They got together for several years, but after some financial difficulties where he actually causes her to lose one of her houses oh man Andy, Um, get it together poor patty she claims or actually they both claim that they lost interest in the relationship and the two separated okay so it wasn't like a big mad breakup on one side nothing dramatic nothing dramatic later it was reported by subsequent ex-boyfriends that patty was obsessed with andy and that they were often compared to him when the new relationship had some difficulties patty would take out pictures of andy and stare at them for long periods of time Oh, my. And this wasn't one ex-boyfriend that reported it. It was several. Okay. That's a little crazy. So she's kind of obsessed with Andy or maybe associating him with a time where she started to feel better. That's right. Because she was flailing after the death of her son. And then Andy kind of swooped in and made her feel better. Reports are mixed about her personality. Friends say that she was bubbly and likable, an animal lover, a caring person, and that she just stayed in touch with anybody and that she would call just out of the blue. Okay. But others would describe her quite differently as a bully, a petty theft. So she actually got 12 months probation for shoplifting at Walmart. Oh, wow. She was a neglectful horse owner and reports state that she she actually appeared before a judge for animal neglect charges on December 12th of that year. Before the abduction took place. So that sounds like two totally different people. Two totally That's a different people. Jekyll and Hyde kind of situation. Yeah. She was also accused of stealing horses with her previous boyfriend, and she actually pled guilty to an assault of a woman outside a bar. She pled guilty to. She pled guilty to it. That kind of makes more sense than why maybe if Patty's mom had lied, saying that Patty was in bed sleeping during that 3 a.m. phone call on the night that they went missing, maybe she's just trying to cover for her knowing like, oh man, what's Patty gotten into now? Yeah. In a picture taken 11 days before the homicide at a rodeo competition, Patty was seen to have dyed blonde hair. Uh-huh. But wouldn't they, have, well I don't know how the research was back then or the technology, like wouldn't they know that it was dyed blonde hair? So they did say it, it appeared blonde, but then as you got closer to the roots, it did look brown or brunette. Oh, okay. But on first initial investigation, it was blonde. Okay. Police began to build a case against Patty. They search for evidence. They follow up on alibis and patiently await DNA testing from the hair samples that have been collected from the crime scenes. Hair samples take a long time, right? It's the 90s. They're still waiting yeah. on any like actual concrete evidence. The Pennsylvania State Police investigators made several attempts to question Patty. So on April 27th, 1995, they show up at her house and they talk through her front door. She's not as forthcoming as she was in the original interview. She admits to phoning Andy, but she says the call took place on December 7th. And she knows that it took place on December 7th because she was telling him about a competition that she had just won. And she was calling everybody that day. Oh, okay. Yeah. She does admit to phoning Andy and having an altercation with Joanne, but her story differs from Andy's. Patty claims, I was just calling to talk to my friend and Joanne totally flips out. She hung up the phone. And then Andy's report is that actually Joanne never swore it was Patty that was swearing, but they both agree. Like both Andy and Patty say that Joanne hung up. So she's ticked off. You don't just hang up the phone. Right, And so Patty was like, oh, it was just because she just had a new baby at home. And this probably wasn't the first phone call. Well, that's what it makes it curious for me is that, are you going to flip out that much over one phone call? No, probably calling? not. She's no. probably always calling. She's just had a baby. It's like, leave my man alone. That's right. You're a little yeah. bit extra sensitive. Yeah. During the trial, evidence is presented through phone records that show a call had taken place from Patty to the Katrinak residence on December 7th but not on December 12th. Okay, because this would then be a long-distance phone call. That call from North Carolina lasted 20 minutes, and that's a long time to have an argument on the phone with somebody. Yeah, that doesn't seem right. Especially when both parties report that the call was short because Joanne was angry and hung up. Yeah, and if you're telling some lady to quit calling your husband, you're not going to talk to her for 20 minutes and then hang up. The prosecutor would argue that the short call on December 12th took place from a payphone in Pennsylvania, a local call that wouldn't show up on phone bills. Oh, so then if, does that place her here? It places her in Pennsylvania, so a lot closer. So if the call was local, she had to be in the area. And then it wouldn't be the big 10-hour drive to get Joanne. Right. Phone records reveal that Patty didn't make any calls from December 11th to December 16th from her home phone. This was really out of character for her. According to the phone records and reports by family and friends, Patty talked on the phone a lot. The phone record did show other stretches of days when she had made no calls from her home phone, but these were usually times when she was away from home, like known to be away from her house. That's totally suspicious. Yeah. So that could place her there then. And who has a 20 minute phone call arguing with somebody? You don't. And this is why I think that if Patty had called to talk to Andy and talk to him on the 7th, all about her competition, like she said, then she calls back on the 12th, less than a week later, then I can see Joanne getting upset, right? I mean, like, don't call my husband anymore. That makes way more sense than some ex-girlfriend calling him like once a year kind of thing. Right. Right. On May 4th, 1995, Patty meets with the Pennsylvania State Police at a lawyer's office. So just as a meeting place, though, there's actually no lawyer present, but her mom is present at the time. Of course she is. Police execute a search warrant of her house, and they find little to go on. They don't find any gun, and actually Patty, during the interview, denies ever owning a gun. Which is curious, because police already have statements from her ex-boyfriends, who claim that she owned a 22 caliber gun, and it always jammed after one shot. Oh, that would explain why just the shot to the cheek. So it kind of goes along with that other investigator's past experience. Okay. Other family and friends say that she was a gun enthusiast and did own a gun, but none of them were exactly sure of the type of gun that she had owned. One week prior to the trial, her half-sister actually comes forward and tells police that Patty's mother asked them to hold on to a small handgun. Oh! Not long after the police investigation started. And did they present this gun that they were hanging on to? Well, they buried it in their backyard, but she claims that her mom came and dug it up and took it away again. That Patty's mom came and Patty's took it. Patty's mom took it away again. Patty's mom claims that she had forgot that she'd been carrying a gun and was on her way to work as a school bus driver and obviously couldn't take it with her. And so her daughter's house was on the way and she dropped it off with them for safekeeping. She claims that she never asked them to keep it or hide it and was angry when she got back to pick up the gun and her daughter had hidden it in the backyard, like buried it in the backyard. So that's a little weird, right? And what does that say about the family then if the other daughter is like, okay, I'll hide this for you, like. Yeah, so it was actually her husband that didn't want it anywhere near their house, and so he takes it out into the backyard and buries it. Yeah, that's interesting. If you ask me to hold on to your gun while you're going off to do your school bus route, which seems like an, a plausible thing, you can't- Yeah, have that a, could happen. Yeah, you, especially if you're out at the shooting range or whatever before you go and you forget that it's in your purse, I guess. I don't know. I don't know, I don't carry guns myself, so I don't know where to get them. But if it's in your purse and you're like, oh, crap, I forgot to drop this off or leave it at home, then you stop at your daughter's house on the way by. Can you hold on to this until after my bus route and then go back and get it? Right. Then you just lock it up You put it on top of the kitchen cabinet. That's Somewhere where no one can reach it. You don't go out and bury it. That's right. Right? If somebody asks you to hide a gun, then you go out and bury it. But do you? Because then you're an accomplice. (laughs) But I guess if it's your mom, what do you do? The, or you don't want to be caught with with a gun that but is But burying dangerous. it in your backyard, you still can be caught with that gun yeah. then on your property. It's so suspicious. Yeah, you, if you're really that worried, you turn it in. Yeah. Ballistics would never be able to be done on the bullets because the gun was actually never found. Oh. So this gun that reportedly was buried in the yard, that people had seen, that Patty's ex-boyfriends had seen her with, it's never found. So the last known story is that Patty's mom dug it out of the backyard and no one's seen it since then. That's right. Patty would say that her ex-boyfriend actually took off with it when they broke up. The gun but then is- why would her, why would Patty's mom's other daughter make this story up? She's a half-sister, so maybe she shouldn't get along with her sister. Yeah, but then she's still implicating her mom in a sense too. Yeah, I don't know. It's just a little sketchy all the way around. It so is. Patty would say that the reason why she told investigators originally that she didn't have a gun was because she didn't have a gun at that time because her ex-boyfriend had taken off with it when he left. Hmm, okay. She's very, very strange. It is. Get your story straight, Patty. Or Patty's mom. Or Patty, yeah, Patty's mom. She's a force to be reckoned with, it sounds like. You don't cross Patty's mom. She's very protective of her daughter. Yeah, she's a mom. Police investigate all the alibis that Patty gives them. So these are her alibis that she gives to police, so trying to prove her whereabouts. And I do want to point out that this is four months after the fact that they start Investigating her. Do you know what you did four months ago? Let alone like two years later when they actually start really going after her once they have some hair evidence. Yeah, unless it was something big that I had planned, I couldn't tell you what I did on that day. So she said she made a short call to her neighbor on December 16th at 5 30. So this timeline I found interesting would be consistent with if she had dropped off Joanne's car around 3 30 p.m. So in the afternoon, right after. The kidnapping or murder. That would give her enough time to get back to North Carolina. Oh, okay. And then you rush home. And if you just committed a murder, don't you want to establish that alibi right away? Probably. So you call up your neighbor at 530 in the morning just to prove that you were home that yeah, morning. Who calls your neighbor at 530? Exactly. Right. Yeah. A bad neighbor. That's who. Yeah. Don't call your neighbors at 5.30 in the morning unless oh, I it's an emergency. Your, I saw your window or your light was on, so I decided to give you a call at 5.30 for no apparent reason. Yeah, hey, what, what you doing? So her initial alibi that she had originally told the first investigators about the gas station and the grain, she actually doesn't have a receipt. And the attendant at the gas station can't confirm that she had been there on that particular date. And that could be just because... It's a gas station. They see so many people. This is like years later that they actually, the police actually go back and try to track it down. Right, And who has their receipt from a gas station from years before? Same thing with the grain though. She has no receipt for the grain that she got particularly on that day. And nobody can remember her being there. Okay. Interestingly though about the grain is that because she was on those animal neglect charges, one of the court orders that had happened on just the 12th was to keep all of her grain receipts so that she could prove to the um, their animal control that she was actually feeding her her animals. Oh. So she was actually court ordered to keep those receipts. So did she, but did she ever turn them in? That's what she says is that she had to keep them and every two weeks she had to show them to the animal control. And then when she turned them in, she got rid of them. But can Animal Control then confirm that she... They didn't confirm that she showed them the receipts? Suspicious. So one of the other alibis that she comes up with is that, hey, on the night of December 15th, I was at Cowboy's Dance Bar. This is a a bar that she frequents at every Thursday, Friday, and Saturday night. She takes lessons there on Thursday nights, and it's a place where a lot of people know her. And do all these people, like, because the staff would know her, do they say that she was there? Nobody will admit to, like, seeing her there on that night, except for her new boyfriend that she gets after the murders take place. Oh, okay. So she starts dating him after she starts getting investigated by police. And all of a sudden, oh, yeah, yeah, she was there. Yeah, she was there. Him and his buddy. Yeah, They saw her. Patty's name, interestingly, is not on the sign-in sheet. I guess there's a law in uh, North Carolina that if you're at a bar, you have to sign in. At that time. Yeah, at that time. So So kind of like during COVID when sometimes you'd go places and you had to put down a contact just in case. (laughs) Just in case something happens. My how times have changed. So Patty's name wasn't on the sign-in sheet, even though every other night of December she had signed in. So she was not there. And like I said, no other staff or patrons could say for sure that she was there on December 15th, except for her new boyfriend and his friend. And he's just covering for her. When providing an interview for the author of Convenient Suspect, which is a book that that talks about Patty's innocence. Patty relates that she was at the bar on Friday night. So this is the night after the disappearances and was asked by people why she looked tired. She told them that she had had some bad news about a friend and had joked around that people should remember that she was at the bar the previous night because she might need an alibi. So remember I was here last night wink 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 and many people actually remember her saying that but they actually don't remember her being there the previous night yeah so they remember what she says on the friday night not the thursday night because that's a weird thing to say to Isn't somebody that's a weird thing it really is that's a little over the top yeah remember i need an alibi for the night after yeah and i actually look tired because i just did all this this driving stopped and murdered this lady and then drove all the way back home yeah didn't get any that's sleep why, why i i, I murdered somebody Please actually gain access to a recorded conversation um with one of the patrons of the bar who's known to have a previous brain injury and memory problems. The recorded conversation sounds like Patty's trying to convince him to provide an alibi for her that she was at the bar. Oh, what a sneak. Take advantage of this vulnerable guy and yeah. try to give him this memory. Like, yeah, sorry. no, remember, remember, remember you I was saw there. me, remember. I was there. Yeah, you have a bad memory. So I'm just reminding you that yeah. you saw me. Several people who knew Patty, oh, Patty, hey. <laughs> shame on you, Patty. Now Andy doesn't look so bad, right? I don't know. I, I I don't know. They both throw them both in jail. Several people who knew Patty would later testify at trial that Patty had been trying to locate an alibi. So there was actually this um, nail salon that she went to that she said she was at on that day. And when the salon went back through its records, it had actually been closed on that particular oh. day. <laughs> Patty, yeah. do your research, hon. And then her penning partners, her mother went and asked for a farrier receipt. Even after the fact. After the fact, even though he had never seen her horses on that day. Okay, this is getting totally suspicious yeah. then. And Patty's mom! Girl, why are you have, have your nose in everything? She is trying to take care of her daughter. One of the cowboy's dance instructors, his daughter took a message from Patty, and the daughter claims that Patty's introduced herself as Patty in Pennsylvania. But Patty... <laughs> Later explains, hold on, just wait. Okay. Patty said that, no, she didn't say Patty in Pennsylvania. She said Patty from Pennsylvania to distinguish her from another Patty because she used to live in Pennsylvania. Okay. On April 8th, 1995, Patricia was ordered to give a hair sample of DNA for testing. She's actually pregnant at the time in her third trimester with the child of her new boyfriend that had vouched for her. At the dance club. So many would go on to speculate that this relationship was a farce because of the age difference of the two people and that Patty was actually just taking advantage of this naive young man to gain an alibi. The mitochondrial DNA is used by the FBI to say that Roar can't be ruled out as a suspect. There's a small root tag that's noted on one of the hairs that was collected from the back headrest of, right. in the car and it's saved for later testing. Because testing at this time would require more material to be tested. So they know that there's something on the route, but it's not enough material to actually use for testing. Some time passes, and when testing has advanced, the FBI actually tests the hair sample in 1997. And tests show that Roar is a match to the car and forest hairs. And although the odds are lower than they normally would be, or what we would accept today, police now believe that they have enough to actually arrest Patty. So this is like quite some time after. And finally, now we think we have enough evidence. On June 24th, 1997 at 6am, Patty is arrested. During the arrest, Patty is reported to have apologized to her 18 month old daughter saying, I'm sorry for doing this to you. If I knew I was going to get caught, I would have never brought you into this world. And spoke of never seeing her daughter again by the female officer that was brought along to accompany the arresting officer. So that's like an admission of guilt right there, is it not? Seems pretty clear cut to me. But it's all hearsay. Man. On February 6, 1998, the murder trial begins. The motive that the persecution present is that Patty, while on a trip to Pennsylvania, tried to contact Andy and became angry when Joanne hung up on her. And her jealousy continued to grow to a amount that she could no longer contain. Joanne had Andy and Patty had just broken up with another abusive partner. Oh, man. Joanne had a new baby and that baby was the same age as the one that she had lost. Yeah, it's a major trigger for her. Yeah. Like, she's had a rough go. And if she's been with another abusive partner, that and, plays a toll on you, too. Yeah. And Andy was the nice guy that she always falls back on. Yeah, the and nice one that she like get away. Police theorized that she stalked Joanne for about three days, then broke into her basement and upon hearing Joanne's plans with her mother-in-law cut the phone line and waited to ambush Joanne by the car at the car she put a gun to Joanne's head as she was placing Alex in the car and forced her to drive to the wooded area after one bullet didn't kill Joanne and the gun locked up Patty had to beat her to death the 5 foot 9 Patty was physically strong because she worked at the barn and Right. so was physically strong and could have easily overpowered the five foot four inch joanne so there's a size difference between the two then she cleaned and drove the vehicle back to the bar where she parked it by backing in she then raced back home to get home before anybody would notice that she was missing that's That's, crazy patricia refuses to take a plea deal by saying how could i explain to my daughter years later that i took a plea for something i didn't do So, Friday, March 7th, 1998, after an 18-day trial and over 100 witnesses, the jury finds Patricia guilty after only hours of deliberation. So, they didn't actually think about it too long. So, that means there's quite a bit of evidence there, if they're not even questioning, really. But remember, it's all circumstantial evidence. So, she's spared the death penalty by the jury and is sentenced to two life terms without parole. Since her arrest, Patty has maintained her innocence and launched several appeals claiming that her lawyers didn't do a good enough job to defend her, that evidence was handled incorrectly, the investigative team withheld information, and accused the investigators and the lawyer of tampering with or even planting evidence and demanding a retesting of the evidence. All appeals have been denied based on technicalities or false claims, except the retesting of evidence, which a judge grants her on October 5th, 2007. Patty is given the choice of which evidence she wants tested and where it will be tested. The DNA is retested on June 25th, 2009 at Orchid Cellmark Laboratories, and it comes back as conclusively hers. Oh, man. (laughs) So So the piece of hair. Absolutely. It is a match to her. So that backfired. Totally backfired. Sorry, Patty. That backfired. But why would you demand retesting evidence that you know is going to come back to you? Yeah. Weird, right? That really is weird. Because if you think like, yeah, that like maybe she thought it was somebody else's hair, like, no, I didn't leave any hair. And really, that's probably her only chance because if it's that piece of hair that's tying her there, maybe she thought, well, I'll just take the chance. Let's get this retested on the off chance that it's not my hair. And throughout the trial, there is numerous times where tampering with the evidence comes up. So Rora is now 57 and is serving her life sentences in Pennsylvania and maintains claims of her innocence and has several websites that point out the holes in all of the circumstantial evidence. Some of the stuff that she points out is... The car cleanup. That how did she clean up a car after a massive bloody fight with Joanne? How did she clean up the car so well in such a short period of time that there's no evidence found in the car of her being bloody or that there was no even like horsehair found in the car, for, like transfer from her to the car? Right? right. She talks about the car that she actually drove at the time was actually a van, and it wouldn't have been reliable enough to get her from North Carolina to Pennsylvania. And then back again and then back again, In the same day. she talks about the no hair ruse and the contamination of hair evidence. What she claims is that the hair that they took from her, like her actual samples to compare the evidence to, she claims that police switched out her hair and tested it against her her own hair or her sample of hair. Oh, okay, and that's why all of a sudden that they now had really, really strong evidence after two years. And that's a big allegation. Huge allegation. To accuse the police of tampering with evidence. And not just like a little small town police force. She's accusing the FBI because that's who did the sampling. Yeah. Huge accusation. That is. Yeah. That's ballsy. But she actually believes it, right? So she's just so delusional? Or she had them test that so that then she could claim that they had tampered with it. Maybe. Maybe that's why she had hair tested That she knew was going to come back as hers so that it would make a stronger case. Right. Yeah. There is a whole bunch of stuff in her appeals about how going back and forth between originally there was no hair roots found. And then all of a sudden in 1997, there was magically these hair roots found on these hairs. Hmm. So there is like some questionable stuff between the reports hmm. in her profile on writeaprisoner.com. She pleads, please help and promises to answer any questions to anybody that will ask. Unfortunately, she's not willing to answer questions to anybody outside of the U S because they can't help her with her case. Oh, so that rules us out. Yeah. Well, she won't talk to us. All right. Interestingly, Angie Katranak moved to Colorado in 1996. So this is before the trial began. And he later married a blonde friend who he had known in Catasauqua at the time of the disappearances. What? This is a tough one because if she did it, then yeah. Sorry, Patty, you should be in jail. But if she didn't, and she's sitting in jail. For a crime she didn't commit? For, yeah, two crimes she didn't commit. But it's hard to believe that there was some great cover up. Like, I think I have more faith in our justice system, but then maybe I, I don't know. And you know what? Honestly, if the police wanted to do a cover up, why not pin it on Andy? Exactly. Who they right? thought Like, he... if they're going to pin it on someone, why this lady, where it's much harder to prove, much harder yeah. to pin it on, then how easy the husband, because he can kill her, well, and I'll he's just tampered I'll park with the car right, and... right next door to our house, like, even yeah. lazy at that, like, oh, well, I'll just park it here. Yeah. Yeah. So if they were going to pin it on someone, my money would be that they would pin it on Andy. Like, why go through the trouble of trying to pin it on this lady? And through multiple appeals, the jury's decision has been upheld. Wow. It's scary to think, though, that if her claims were true, that the justice system completely failed. And it's refusing to actually correct a mistake. Through all of its, like, oh, you didn't file in a timely manner, and sorry, we're not going to retest that, and... Right, because the ball was dropped a few times, right? Like releasing the vehicle. Like there are a few things that hopefully today those types of things aren't happening anymore. And if it was handled promptly and quickly and had the testing of today right away, would it have the same outcome? It sounds like to me that the case wouldn't have passed the verdict based on reasonable doubt today. Because that's all you need. That's right. Is reasonable doubt. And what did they ever say about Andy? Why was he tampering with all this evidence? He just gave the excuse that he wanted police to pay attention more to the disappearance of his wife and his son. So he wanted it to look more urgent. That's right. He he needed to to get them because they had come to the house multiple times. They weren't taking him seriously. And so he does later say that, hey, I I did these things because you weren't paying attention. Okay. Yeah. It's even scarier to think that if she didn't do it, that there is somebody out there that murdered... Like a young mom and her baby. Yeah, and has gotten away with it. Yeah, totally gotten away with it. That's a crazy one. That is crazy. So listeners, what do you think? Do you think Patty's guilty? Do you think Andy's guilty? Do you think it's a random third party that's guilty? Do you think she should be in jail? We want to hear about it. So go to our Facebook page, go to Instagram, send us a message, let us know. Definitely. So that's it this week. That is... A crazy, confusing story of the death of Joanne and Alex Kachanak and the conviction of Patty Rohr. Next week, we'll be back with another exciting true crime story with Christy at the helm. Yeah, my turn (laughs) back. We'll see you later. Bye. start over pandy asked <laughs> pandy. for multiple de- yeah. disputes for multiple domestic debu- debuses, debuses. <laughs> it needs to be pandy Pandy i got <laughs> enthusiast sorry a gun enthusiast. i got enthusiast and didn't <laughs> who are you sure it's not yeah. pandy <laughs> hopefully there's something in there that's usable